Blog Talk Radio. General Quarters, Security Condition 3. GQ, Security 3, sir. General Quarters 3, Intruder Alert. GQ 3, Intruder Alert. Good evening and welcome once again to another exciting, exotic, and fantastic episode of Madame Perry's Salon. At least I hope you'll find it. One, if not all three of those words. I, first of all, as usual, want to say thank you, thank you, thank you for everyone who is making this podcast grow. All my followers, subscribers, listeners, sponsors, you help me to get good sponsors. You help me to get great guests. And I've been very, very fortunate to have so many excellent guests. And it's because you guys listen and Tell your friends about it and make it grow, and I thank you for it. Of course, I am your host and cruise director, Madam Perry. Also, personal assistant to the corgis who become extortionists as soon as the show goes live. Now, tonight's guest um, isn't here yet in the salon, so I'm going to tell you some things that have been going on like I usually do. Uh, We've had so many interesting people lately. And even more coming up soon. Uh, we had Tom Slick. I think that might have been two weeks ago we had Tom Slick. You probably know him from the song Wobble that he produced for VIC. He said a lot of work with Yin Yang Twins, uh, Pitbull. Just had an absolutely delightful time with Tom Slick, so much so that he already called me back to book again in January. So I'm definitely looking forward to that. Um, also, coming soon is Tony Green. Tony Green is a psychic with several books. She has her own podcast, and uh, she's going to be here on the 12th. Who else do we have tomorrow night? Mitchell Levy. He is the AHA guy. He's going to teach you about making your marketing and business so much easier so you can make money. And uh, sure, I'm glad he's on the show because... I need that as much as anybody else. Um, Also, who else do we have? Um, Wednesday, Kat Canavas. And Kat uh, was on the podcast about a year and a half ago. Uh, She has a book called Surviving Cancerland. And she's got a new book, too, about dreams. Now, Kat was able to diagnose exactly where her own or locate her own cancer Uh, following information she received in a dream. And in fact, she was even on Dr. Oz a couple of months ago talking about that. So she's going to be on Wednesday night, so looking forward to that. And, oh, next Monday the 10th, 
one of our favorites. He's been on here before, but it's been a while. He's our favorite master of horror. We love this man so much, Jasper Bark. Jasper Bark is a writing machine. Um, he's producing a new web TV show, has a new book. Has Jasper Bark always has things going. He's I don't know how he does it. I think his I think it's because he's got a wife and two daughters, so therefore he's got all that magnificent feminine energy in there, uh, buoying his creativity and his uh, prolific output of work. So Jasper Bark on Monday the 10th, cannot wait. Now, while I wait for tonight's guest to show up, think, or since I show up, but yeah, let's go ahead and play some music. By the way, I also want to say, if you're listening live, today is Monday, October 2nd. It's been quite a day. It's been quite a few weeks lately. Um, we want to say to all of our friends in Texas and Florida, you know, we hope you're able to uh, begin putting your lives back together and healing and rebuilding. For the people in Puerto Rico, we pray for you. We're hoping that you get supplies you need soon. So many people are donating their time and money to getting that done. Uh, Las Vegas. The horrid tragedy that happened last night at the country music concert, especially during Jason Aldean's performance, just absolutely heinous, horrible thing. Can't imagine all the heartbreak uh, that's going on everywhere now, and that's just in the States. Um, I mean, everywhere in the world, there's a lot going on. So whatever your belief system, whatever you do, whether you chant, pray, meditate, um, whatever you can do to send some goodness out in the world for fellow Humankind, please do. We all need it. And yeah, so what, what, what will I play? I know Ben Fawn was on the show recently, and I have had so many people comment on the music Ben Fawn played uh, from his new CD. I don't even know where to start, but I know that my friend Kenya Colbert. She was listening that night and happened to call in listening to Ben's story. And you can always go back. This Ben Fon, P-H-A-N is his last name. Uh, Kenya was so moved, she called in and talked to him, and just his songs really touched her, as they did a lot of people that called or messaged to tell me about that later. So I'm going to play something from Ben Fon's new album, and this song is called Fiddler. Yes, it's coming right now. Fiddler by Ben Fon. You're gonna be a fiddler someday, but you better get to practicing before you roll the grave. And your best years slip away We laugh and joke and skips along the way Wonder if we'd ever be nostalgic for this day When we are old and gray Sour the sad old man in a dark cafe Living for said not much these days. You are young, you best be on your way. If you wanna be a fiddler someday, 
You're not hearing the static that I'm hearing. And uh, so let me tell you about my guest tonight. My guest tonight has been investigating the complex psychology of our interactions with other species for more than two decades. Uh, he's an award-winning teacher and researcher who's written more than 100 articles and book chapters, as well as books. His research has been published in uh, several journals, The American Psychologist, Journal of the Royal Society, New Scientist, Anthrozoos, Bioscience, the Journal of the American Veterinary Medical Association and Animal Behavior, and has been covered by Newsweek Slate, Salon, National Public Radio, Scientific American, USA Today, Washington Post, Chicago Tribune, Boston Globe, and many others. He's interested primarily in how people negotiate real-world ethical dilemmas, and he studied animal activists, cockfighters, animal researchers, circus animal trainers. Uh, so my, 
hope that you are welcome to me. We're going to talk tonight about his book, Some We Love, Some We Hate, Some We Eat, and Why It's So Hard to Think Straight About Animals. However, he's, um, I think, just pulling into our driveway now. And I also promised that I would play tonight for Ray Daffricone. You know, Ray was on not long ago. And Ray is one of our favorite musicians and favorite guests here at Madame Perry Salon. Now we're going to play a song, uh, Ray's song, Gun Lovers. It's Ray Daffrico, Gun Lovers. Lovers from the recent CD Solo A Go Go by Ray D'Africo. 
and Ray's shout out to Ray on that. I've played that before. And my guest is not here yet, so I'm going to invite anyone to call 646-716-9922. That's 646-716-9922. Talk about whatever's on your mind. And today, there's a lot on our minds today. Uh, You know, I was telling someone, a friend and I were having lunch Saturday, having brunch, and we were talking about how sometimes it gets to where we we just get where we almost don't want to read the news anymore, don't want to check it. But if you don't, so much has happened in just a short amount of time these days. And, uh, you know, I tried to be a little lighthearted and say, well, I always figure, go ahead and check if we've been, uh, if we're being attacked the North Koreans, well, I'll just go ahead and have that extra container of chocolate chip cookie dough ice cream, calories aren't going to matter. But the reality is that's not, we say that, you know, for a little a little courage, but it's not exactly how we feel. You know, it's a lot scarier than that. And so right now, knowing that especially the people in Puerto Rico are dying, I just read that there was an entire ICU unit, intensive care unit in a hospital where everyone had died. I guess no power to run any machines, life-saving machinery or equipment. And um, and then today, so many people are processing the events that happened in Las Vegas last night. It's just so heartbreaking. And then, of course, we hear that Tom Petty died, and then we hear that Tom Petty, as I said in Spam a lot, is not yet dead yet. So I don't know, but I do know this. Anything that my listeners want to say or want to call in and talk about, I'm here for you. And I'd love to hear your point of view. I'd love to hear your thoughts, whichever they are, whatever whatever comes to mind, what you want to talk about, just give me a call, 646-716-9922. And I think I'm going to play another song by a former guest. Uh, This is, I just don't know where there's so much we're thinking about. I'm trying to think of what kind of music would I put at a time like this? Uh, What kind of music can I play? What about uh, Joe Symes and the Loving Kind? No turning back. This is a Liverpool band, just like a loving kind. Knows what we once had. 
Joe Symes and the Loving Kind, a band out of Liverpool, UK, and uh, this band has really taken off, so if you haven't followed them yet or haven't listened to them, uh, you're one of the few people yet that doesn't know who they are, go ahead and check it out. Right now, um, as I said, my guest has not come tonight. Maybe he got lost on the way to the genie's bottle. Maybe he didn't know the secret words, huh? So... I'm going to play some music, and I hope that if you want, you'll call in and talk about just about anything. Let me know what's on your mind. Number to call is 646-716-9922. And I'm going to play a song by a, a, a guest, former guest, Chasm Sultan. And this is from his last, or from one of his recent solo CDs, Clocks All Stop, Chasm Sultan. One day, who knows, maybe I'll fly to the moon. I drew back the curtain to start the show, but the crowd already left the room.
Sasha, Valeli, you don't give a damn. And before that, Kaz Sultan, the clock falls. You know Kaz Sultan. You know him from Todd Rundgren, Utopia, Celine Dion. What the? Thank you for calling ABL Technologies. If you're calling an employee and know the extension. Pretty much. Whoa, wait a minute. What am I doing? I'm calling the wrong number here. I thought I was trying to call <laughs> Uh, call my guest. I'll tell you what, I think I'm going to be able to call um, Hal Herzog. And uh, let me see, but that was the wrong number. Let me see if I can get him in here. But you're still welcome to call and talk about whatever is on your mind or about my guest or talk to my guest tonight. And I think he's about to come right here into the genie bottle. Hello. Hello, this is Hal Herzog. This is he. Well, welcome to the genie bottle that is Madame Perry Salon. How are you doing? Well, thanks for thanks for inviting me to be on. I'm doing fine. How are you? I'm doing good. Doing good. Um, it's been it's been quite a day, hasn't it? For everybody. It has um, been quite a day. On? It has been it has been quite a day. Yeah, so there's a lot going on. So I'm, I'm glad that you that you could make it here. I, I would understand if you couldn't. Everybody's got a lot on their minds, and not only as I was saying earlier, the, um, you know, everyone in, in the U.S. and around the world, you know, beset by uh, tragedy, as well as. Then today we find out that somebody says, I see a report that Tom Petty is dead. And then they said in Spamalot, he's not dead yet. So we're not really sure what's <laughs> my, going my, on. My wife I and I know. just had a conversation about that, exactly. Really? <laughs> yeah. You know, so, and, and, and somebody, you know, it's like, please don't do this to us, you know. I think his his daughter's very upset that the Rolling Stone and TMZ just ran with the story, wanted to scoop it, and were wrong. So yeah, let's right. let's not give any misinformation. And that is exactly why you're here. It's because you don't give misinformation to anyone. And I have been hearing about your work for years from friends of mine that are fans of yours, and just happy to have you here. Um, well, thanks so much for book, thanks so much for inviting me. Go ahead. Oh, you're quite welcome. Well, actually, I got some very cute pictures of you that I put up on uh, social media. One is with you and a cute little um, monkey, uh-huh. chimpanzee. <laughs> I mean, that's exact. That is just having a good time. Uh, but, I was right, you. A friend of mine, Diane Wilkie, I was at a dinner party at her house, and she was talking about your book. And uh, her book club had read, and I think you came out and talked with them one night. And it was the book, Some We Love, Some We Hate, Some We Eat, Why It's So Hard to Think Straight About Animals. And you cover a lot of territory with I imagine you get a lot of reaction, different types of reactions from people. I, I do. And um, the thing that's interesting is I had anticipated that I would get a, um, you know, a sort of mixed reaction from the book, especially with animal activists. And actually, they've been incredibly supportive. 
And uh, I've been I've been pleased with the response with that the book has gotten. Okay, what is and and uh, I'm going to ask you to, to correct me and uh, what is is this anthrozoology? Anthrozoology. Anthrozoology is the new science of human animal interactions. And what it is, is the study of uh, all of our complicated relationships that we have with the other species that we share the world with. And it's all the way from uh, questions about related to uh, our companion animals, you know, the dogs and the cats and fish and birds that we invite into our homes and that we treat as their, our companions, to the animals we eat, to the animals we use in research, for, to the animals that we hunt. And, you know, to me, I'm a psychologist, and to me, this offers just this incredibly uh, amazing uh, window into really big questions about human nature and who we are and how we know the right thing to do. And it's a very, very broad field and one that's, that I think is real important. It's getting a lot of attention now, too. You know, I was going. I was talking um, earlier and mentioned to people some, and I, and I even listed some of your chapters on uh, when I was putting out promotions for this. And I love your titles. Pretty much tell it all. Um, I'm just going to read a few titles: um, <laughs> The Importance of Being Cute, uh, <laughs> Friends, Foes, and Fashion Statements, Prom <laughs> Prom Queen Kills First Deer on Sixteenth Birthday. And then you go on, delicious, dangerous, disgusting, and dead, uh, moral status of mice. All these titles, I'm going to, you know, just two more to me read. The cats in our houses, the cows on our plates, are we all hypocrites? And the carnivorous yahoo within ourselves. So what, uh, I was wondering, what brought you to write this book, and how long did it take? Because there's a lot of work that went into yeah, well, some we yeah, love, well, some we what brought me to write it was I, I'd been studying uh, human, the psychology of human-animal interactions for about 30 years, and I, you know, published a lot of, uh, you know, research for, you know, aimed at my, you know, fellow researchers and things like that. And, I, and then I realized uh, most of these articles are not really read by very many people at all, and they just don't have much impact. And I thought, you know, it would be fun for me to try and write a book that would sort of uh, raise the uh, issues that me and my fellow anthrozoologists have been have been working on, uh, you know, to try and write a, a book for the public so that the, the public could sort of understand what we do and why it's important. Uh, in terms of, of how long it took me to write the book, it took me a year to write the book. And, you know, that's when I actually started down and, you know, outlining chapters and actually writing the book. But it actually, it's based on basically 30 years of study that I've been doing in this field. So it's, it, it's, it's, it's basically what I've learned. And I think my, my fellow researchers have learned uh, really in the last three decades about our interactions with other species. Has, has our, our attitude toward different species of animals and in all three ways, some, the, some we love, some we hate them, been a big change in the attitude of humans towards animals, say, in the last years, a couple of centuries? There's been a huge change in the last couple of centuries, and I think there's been a really big change, like in the last 30 years. Uh, and that change has yeah. occurred. Let's just talk about that 30-year that 30, that 30 period. 
Um, one of mm-hmm. the things is that uh, the we is this phenomenon of the humanization of pets, and so now something like ninety percent of Americans think of their pets. About sixty, about two thirds of people have pets in the United States. Ninety percent of them, if you ask them, they will tell you that they consider uh, their their pets genuine family members. And that's had lots of implications. It has moral implications. It has economic implications um, in terms of how much money we're willing to spend on our pets and how we think about it. But we've also, we're also seen some changes in our attitude towards, for example, the animals that we eat. And uh, more and more people are thinking about the difficult moral, moral uh, questions raised by, uh, why, you know, why is it that we love, love animals and why is it we can eat animals that are equally smart and equally cute and, uh, you know, equally sentient, you know, that they, they have a sense of personhood in their, and their, and their, uh, their beings like, like us in some ways. So it's been, it's been a big change, been a big change, I think, in how we think about animals. Yeah, I know you said, um, and, in, in one chapter you say, I have, you've, you say, well, I'll just read it from the book. I have attended animal rights protests, serpent-handling church services, and clandestine rooster fights, interviewed laboratory animal technicians, big-time professional dog show handlers, and small-time circus animal trainers. And, the, yes, I think these are a lot of situations that, that have had a big change in public opinion and attitude in the last 30 years. Um, there are some people who come out, well, I know that like cockfighting or dog fighting, you know, still a clandestine thing, but the people that are in it consider it a very, you know, family activity. And you went, I guess, what, undercover to study? Well, I actually, I actually, I actually wasn't undercover. <laughs> the, uh, the, oh, uh, I was studying, okay. I was, I was studying rooster fighting uh, uh, back in the 1970s. I was actually doing it for part of my doctoral dissertation research. And I was, I was living, and I still am with, in rural North Carolina. And at the time, cockfighting was about as illegal as littering. And that's no longer true now. But uh, I, I, I won't go into the details about how I wound up you know, ingratiating myself with these rooster fighters, but I was, I was interested in the behavior of chickens, and they're interested in the behavior of chickens. And I, you know, this, this old timer invited me to go to a rooster fight, and I sort of reluctantly agreed to go. And I found this sort of cult, subculture that was very strange, very disturbing, but that had, but that had uh, some, some moral areas, some moral gray areas. And uh, what, I, what I argue in my book you know, is that in some ways, cockfighting is more ethical than eating, eating a chicken McNugget. Quite surprisingly, but in terms of the amount of suffering and you know, I would rather come back in the next world as a gamecock than I would a broiler destined to, uh, you know, to become a chicken McNugget. And you probably would too. And and you know, so the question is that 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 cockfighting sort of raises some some deep issues. In some ways, the the the, the thinking that uh, cockfighters go through to justify their activity in this illegal, brutal sport is pretty similar, for example, to the logic that I was using uh, at the same time when I was doing animal research and uh, the same logic that people use when they justify eating animals. And so what I learned from that, those studies of cockfighting was that we, we live in a very untidy moral world. And uh, at some point I stopped my studies of animal behavior and I basically for the 
for the next 30 years, I've been looking at how people think about animals and uh, how we sort of deal with the morally, moral complexities of our, of our uh, relationships with them. Yeah, there's a, um, there's a section, too, where you're talking about um, dolphins, about different people's opinions of dolphins, and some people, you know, save the dolphins and are concerned about their purported ability to heal through good vibes and things or mysterious electric fields. And sometimes I wonder, and, and I have a study like you have, but just, you know, just empirically from what I see, uh, it seems that things tend to go in, in fads or fashions, people's attitude, general public attitude. Yeah. Uh, oh, ab- ab- that's absolutely true. And we, and I I think these fads, I think you're really on something here. I think these fads are enormously important in lots of areas of our relationships with animals. For example, one of the things uh, that my colleagues and I have studied are fads in dog breeds, like why did dog breeds suddenly become popular, especially dog breeds that have serious health problems. So, for example, right now, English bulldogs are one of the most rapidly growing, uh, in terms of popularity, one of the most, most rapidly growing uh, breeds in the United States. But on the other hand, they are a uh, one of my my friends calls it a a walking veterinary train wreck, and um, you know they have enormous health problems, and we sort of bred them to have those health problems. Uh, the thing with, with with dolphins that I basically write that I write about in the book is whether or not dolphins make good therapists. And uh, first of all, there's two questions: one, one, uh, do dolphins make good dolphins make good therapists? And another is um, wait a minute here. Uh, another another is that uh, is there actually uh, you know, eth- what, you know the ethical questions raised by the issue of uh, you, know, you know we have the right to keep animals you know swimming around in a concrete you know a concrete uh, swimming pool basically mm-hmm. because we think they may you know heal a disease which they're really not not very good at. <laughs> not to diss the poor dolphin, but it's just not what they were. <laughs> that they don't have that skill. <laughs> no, they don't. They don't have that. Oh. <laughs> and and the, interesting, the interesting thing is that what that what what I uh, argue in my book is that the public has an exaggerated view of uh, the health impacts of, for example, pets on our lives. And part of this is sort of pushed by the pet products industry, but the empirical evidence is not as good as most people think that, uh, you know, that if you get a dog, you're going to be happier and you're going to be healthier. Or that swimming with dolphins can cure things like autism and uh, depression. (laughs) Wow. Yeah, I think I remember, um, gosh, could have been 30 years ago, going to someone um, for rolfing session and the woman was talking about going to see when she wanted to go see a challenge, a, 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 someone who did channeling, and that was when we first started hearing about people channeling some uh, a spirit. And she said, and they were trying to find ways to get dolphins into this event. And I remember thinking, <laughs> well, <laughs> what the, <laughs> you know, okay. And and even if somebody is really challenging, I mean, channeling, you know. Why would you want to drag this dolphin out of the water somehow, put it in a crate, you know, traumatize it to go to this thing just to listen to somebody channel? You know, it's going, look, I could have stayed back where I was, you know, and hung out with the family, maybe spawned a few, you know, 
a family of my own and uh, had something good to eat, but no, you had to put me in a you know, a crate and put some water and carry me up here. I mean, but then again, <laughs> I don't know. I haven't heard about anyone doing that lately. Doesn't mean that they're not though. But um, yes, and now don't hear it all. That kind of thing much anymore, but um, but I do like like I've got to say this this um, and I'm, I know I'm taking some of your lines out of context, but where it says dolphin therapy raises pesky ethical issues. Clinical psychologists choose to become therapists. Dolphins do not. So, That's right. <laughs> so I'm saying, that, that, why drag somebody minding their own business out of the ocean? That's 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 exactly right. And this, you know, the thing that's interesting is that is that you know the idea that dolphins make good therapists, uh, which 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 they which they don't actually. This raises other questions that we're seeing now. Uh, you know, dolphin therapy is sort of falling out of fashion, but we see a lot of, uh, for example, if you if you've been on an airplane recently, uh, there's a pretty good chance that uh, there's an emotional support animal. Uh, might be it might be a, a dog. Uh, a friend of mine recently was on an airplane, and there was an emotional support duck waddling up and down the aisles of the airplane. And really? Issues, and, and, yeah, yeah, absolutely. And uh, recently, <laughs> there was a, uh, a, a, a fight on a, I've forgotten the airline, but there was a fight because there was a guy that got on the, got on the, air, the airplane, and he had a serious pet allergy. He had serious allergy to, you know, fur. And he was he was uh, yeah. supposed to be you know sitting next to a person that had a uh, an emotional support dog, and uh, th- this resulted in a, a serious altercation on the on the on the plane. And so the question is, um, you know, how many of these uh, emotional support dogs and service animals that we see on we see on, for example, airplanes or uh, in restaurants mm-hmm. are for real, or how many are fake? And there's basically a cottage industry right now in the United States on, uh, you know, fake certifications for uh, service animals and emotional support animals. Or, uh, or, or at least the wardrobe for it. So, yes, absolutely right. The it, <laughs> they got the gear and the uniform. <laughs> you can just. They got the gear and the uniform. And inter- interestingly enough, go ahead. Yeah. I'm gonna say that's like trying to, you know, if you want to get into a building, just have a clipboard and a and a, a bunch of keys, you know, and then you look like you belong, like you've got a job to do. <laughs> that's right. And the interesting thing about the, uh, the those uh, that paraphernalia, that you know, the vest that say service animal or you know therapy animal, things like that. There's no government regulation that requires that. So people think that well, if you want to have your animal a service animal, emotional support animal, you know, you need to have a you need to have a vest. And that's just not true. You don't have to. The animal does not have to be in a vest. I've got to. I've got to read one more. I guess this the, the sum up the uh, the dolphin thing. When you said, according to my friends who have done it, swimming with dolphins is fun. But marine animal, but marine mammals are not magic bullets. A week of dolphin therapy won't straighten the spine, heal the troubled mind, or prevent epileptic seizures and i love your last line it says save your money save a dolphin so we couldn't put it better than that (laughs) Uh, and yeah i guess that would think you know where does it stop i mean if somebody was on a plane you know maybe i i can't say that somebody's duck wasn't an emotional support but on the other hand i would think that a ferret would certainly go outside the realm 
of uh, emotional support, at least for everyone else on a plane. That's correct, but the airlines, but, but 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 according to federal federal regulations, a, a ferret can be an emotional support animal. Uh, so can a llama. And in fact, in fact, uh, there was a, a New Yorker writer, Patricia Marks, who actually uh, took a llama. She claimed it was an emotional support animal. And she took it on an Amtrak flight from New York City to Albany, and she took a turkey, an emotional support turkey, on a JetBlue flight. <laughs> so. <laughs> And, and, you know, for whatever reason, you know, if it, if it means that much to somebody and if it really works, I mean, I don't know. I have a a, a, a dog that's a Aussie cattle dog and Carter and Cordy mix. And this dog is such an empath. And if he thinks anybody's upset or sick or hurt, he's got to be right there just to lay with them. Right. And he's just such an empath. Um I know he can't heal them, he can't make them better, but he just zeroes in on anybody that's got something going wrong. And do you see a lot of people that, or did you come into situations with animals that, as you say, people talk about dogs that detect illnesses or work with people who have seizures or diabetes? Well, there's some, there's some areas in which I think the evidence is, is, is quite good. And so, for example, I, I think, my my view of the evidence is quite good that that dogs can, for example, uh, smell cancers, certain certain types of cancers, for example, bladder cancers. Um, the evidence for take for example seizure alerts is to me mixed. I've read I've read you know some studies have found that uh, the dogs can do this. Some studies have found that it that it that, that it that, you know the, the dog the dogs were not able to do this. So the evidence for that is mixed. There's no evidence that getting a pet will make people live longer. Despite, despite claims of the pet products industry, there's no evidence that, that, that getting, a, getting a pet will make you live longer. Uh, there are studies which show... Have you, have you talked which, to Betty White about this? No, I have not. I have not talked to Betty White. <laughs> okay, I'm sorry. Go ahead. <laughs> does, she, does she make, does she make that claim? Yes, and look how old she is. So I'm just saying. Well, that's that's that, that that's good enough for me. That's definitely good enough for me. Okay. I, I, though I will have to say that the epidemiological studies, which sometimes include tens of thousands of people, have found that pet owners do not live longer than non-pet owners. But... <laughs> but, but the other okay. the other thing is it's very it's very clear it's very clear that that that. The other thing where we have really good evidence that, that pets are good for people is that they uh, provide relief from, from uh, short-term relief from anxiety and stress. And for many people, pets are just enormously important in, in, in increasing the quality of their lives. And uh, I saw this in my parents. You know, as they got older, they had, uh, they had dachshunds. And uh, those dachshunds were just an incredibly uh, important part of their, their family and uh they they may they 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 were much better people in terms of their uh you know psychological well-being for having those dogs in their lives so there's no question about that when uh <laughs> what um oh here's another thing it's on here i remember i remember after um I gotta say, Diane Wilkie 
brought your book and showed it to somebody at a party. And this woman, every time she would show it, because there's the image, uh, the silhouette of a, of a puppy and a, it's like a mouse or a rat and a pig on the cover yeah. of the book. And yeah. this woman just freaked out. Just at an image, just a, just a silhouette of a rat, she freaked out. And I thought, you know, and everybody has something that, you know, gives them the willies that they just can't see. But I think about you can there's a you know the rat traps and the glue traps and everything that's there if you something's in your house and it's eating you're worried about it bringing in germs you know people set up a, a trap but see it in a store or a picture and it's made kind of like a little image a little statue and it's cute and it's wearing an apron with a little broom and then you want that little mouse in the house but yeah. when you see it <laughs> running across the floor, you don't think, you know, if I put a little bow on its neck and a little apron, just like this little little thing I've got up here in the kitchen, you know, how can we see them two different ways like that? Well, you, it, you it's funny you that you mentioned It's really funny that you mentioned that about the cover <laughs> of the book because, because the rat on there, you know, the, the rat on there looks pr- pretty nice, but the original cover, it did not look so nice. And uh, the original cover uh, was not was not like the, was not was not yellow and bluish, you know, sort of filling colors. It was uh, dark green and black, like Halloween nightmare colors. And uh, the rat the rat looks so evil that uh, you know my my agent sent me the uh, or my my editor sent me the cover, and I I I thought well okay you know you guys know a lot about selling books this will this will work and I sent a copy to my sister and my sister said. I would never buy that book because of that rat. And so I contacted, I contacted, I, I, I contacted the, the, uh, the, uh, you know, the, the, the publisher and I said, look, can we, can we make these things look more friendly for exactly the reason that you said? And, uh, and they, I said, we need to make these animals, we need to make the pig look less piggy and more friendly, you know, less like an evil Russian boar that's going to rip your face off. And more like a cute, you know, like Babe, the friendly pig. <laughs> and they and and they did it. But in a way, that was the, that 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 little conflict over what the cover looked like sort of exemplifies what you're saying. It also exemplifies the title of the book. You know, some animals we love, some animals that are very similar we we hate, and you know, and some we eat. And the interesting thing is, a lot of this is due to culture. So, for example, that puppy, which is so cute in Kansas. Is an object of uh, you know is, a, is an item on the on the on the dinner menu you know in Korea, and so many of our so much of our attitudes about animals and the way we treat them are really a product of our culture and the way that we're brought up. So even even an animal like you know there's a certain amount of instinct that's involved you know like you know we all find you know you know puppies puppies cute and you know dressed those dressed up little mice cute, um, and that's that's biological. But on the other hand, that puppy's just as cute in China or Korea, where you know where you're going to eat it for dinner. Mm-hmm. So there's the culture makes a big difference in how we perceive the animals in our lives. Yeah, I know. My husband was uh, on a business trip once in Vietnam, and he was talking. It was a situation where you know he's he's always needing to be diplomatic because we're going to save this customer and take care of things. And he said, you know, whatever they ate, wherever they take me, you know, I go, I, I eat it. Um, they gave me something to eat that had didn't seem to have a lot of meat but a lot of bones. They said, "What is it?" And they just did the gesture. There was a mole, you know, squint the eyes and did the little paws in front. And go, oh, okay. <laughs> and then the next night they took him somewhere and he said it was cobra, and it was cobra oh, twenty five ways or something on the menu. So he has that. 
you know, he's thinking, I got to save this, you know, save the customer for the company. And then I think the third night, you know, they said they were going to have a dog. He goes, okay, now listen, you know, I've eaten, I've gone everywhere you wanted me to go. I've eaten what you wanted to eat, but this. And they said, okay, we understand, we understand. You can't do this. <laughs> and uh, and you know, they were understanding, but. Um, Oh yeah, he still has his his uh, uh, menu for Cobras. I'll, I'll make a copy and send it to you if you like. <laughs> I like so. <laughs> I'd like to do that. Well, about about twenty five. Yeah, presently, about twenty five million dogs a year are eaten are eaten, uh, mostly mostly in uh, in Asia. So the the dog meat trade is doing is doing pretty well. When um, <laughs> do you have pets? Oh yeah. Cat, Tilly. Yeah. My cat Tilly. Yeah. Uh-oh. Now, now, what do you think when? What do you say when? And I know I've read the stories in here, and I've, I've watched some of your other interviews. You know, when people say something that, um, and I'm not saying I don't want to be a hypocrite. I'm not saying that I've never done anything like this. But when people say anything with the face, but they're eating fish. Or something yeah. and then um, I yeah. saw one uh, one interview you did and somebody asked you about that and then they put up a picture of this cute little fish face and <laughs> just staring right <laughs> at the screen. <laughs> yeah. How how do you delicately ask somebody what what's the difference or what's the difference with the face? I guess maybe they don't think about a fish having a face because it doesn't always look them in the eye like a on land. Well, I've had I've actually had a lot of conversations, as you might imagine, with people about this. And what you said that you don't want to be a hypocrite, and I I don't like to use that word. But the bottom line is that I think we're all hypocrites when it comes to our interactions with animals. There, there's, no, that's not true. There's some people that are not. However, their lives become very difficult. And so, for example, I have friends that are uh, absolute moral purists when it comes to uh, to animals, and they but they feel guilty when they drive their car because they worry about the bugs that they're going to smash on their windshield. And uh, I I have a uh, I had lunch with uh, two friends of mine, a husband husband and wife, and they're both long term vegans. Well, it turns out that uh, she her doctor convinced her that she needed to start eating small amounts of meat for uh for health reasons which she did start doing mm-hmm. and it, her health has improved now her husband on the other hand didn't doesn't go it's not going along with this but she developed a, a very sophisticated rationalization for why it was okay for her to meet her to eat meat which in one which i agreed with she's very smart and she uh and she really thought about this a lot before she actually decided that she could she really needed to do this for her health but you know, most of us, and I'm, I'm, as I'm, I'm the worst, and this is why I'm the worst. I, I'm serious. I'm serious about this. I, uh, no. I eat animals. I, I eat animals, and I do a few little mm-hmm. things to make it uh, more ethically palatable. And so, for example, I'm willing to pay more for uh, a piece of beef that I'm told on the package is humanely raised. Uh, you know that was you know grass fed and you know presumably had a nice mm-hmm. life, not nice life. However, I know more than most people the arguments, and I believe the arguments are correct about why we should not eat animals. 
Um, you know, eating meat is uh, is morally it's morally suspect on uh, ethical grounds, environmental grounds. It's a no-brainer. Um, and then for health reasons, meat is not good for us. It's bad for us. I know this, but I still do it. And so I, I'm 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 the biggest hypocrite <laughs> of all. But but I think but I think that most of us have these these areas where we sort of I, I think the difference between me and, and a lot of people is that I'm sort of forced to think about this because it's you know an area that I do research in, uh, and what most people do is they simply don't think about it. So it's very easy for them to say like this you know these cockfighters are cruel and horrible and you know uh, you know mentally disturbed and all that stuff. But at the same time, you know their consumption of chicken. Is is worse, and you know when it comes when it comes to animal animal suffering. So you know I think we all have these sort of moral blind spots, and uh, one of the, one of the problems is that if you start taking these issues seriously, in many cases your life becomes less fun. Does that make sense? Uh, because mm-hmm, because mm-hmm. a lot of the people that I know that that think a lot think a lot deeply about these issues, they see suffering all around them. And I think I think it's a hard way to live. It's 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 a uh, in some ways it's a morally better way to live. But on the other way, and in the other in the other sense, it's 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 less it's less fun. Mm-hmm. So, um, on to, on a, on a, I agree with you there. Yeah, you can you can get yourself so caught up, and and. All the negatives, and I shouldn't, and, and start feeling guilt. Yeah, yeah, it is fun. Cakes just takes the joy out of everything. You know, everything just seems to be a dilemma and a rough choice. Well, what about? Oh, yes, I also wanted to ask you. You mentioned here snake handlers, churches that hand. I mean, I'm a southerner, <laughs> as you can tell, but I have. Yeah, you got a great accent. Yeah. That, Nobody has. Uh, I've never been to anything like that. Never been to any kind of church where there was anyone handled serpents or um, yeah. um, any any other animal. Did you actually attend such events? Yes. Yes. And what do you what do you think of it? I mean, do people? Did you see anybody that seems frightened, or does everybody seem to be in a? a, a I don't know, maybe sort of a mob hypnosis or that it's, it's okay and it's not going to hurt him and it's going to be a show of faith or well, – it, well, it yeah, trying it, to sneak it, out the back door? <laughs> <laughs> Absolutely not. Uh, there's, nobody, there's nobody that's frightened. Absolutely not at all. There's a, uh, there's a power in these churches that uh, I find just absolutely fascinating and to have a faith which is so strong that you will, you know, reach down into a uh, a box of uh, rattlesnakes, you know, and grab one in mm-hmm. each hand and hold it over your head. Um, that's where the rubber meets the road when it comes to belief, you know. And uh, for uh-huh. a true believer, I mean, and the other thing is that this this is not their snake handlers do get bit. And there's been over a hundred deaths. This is this is not an old thing that goes back for for centuries. It's roughly it's a little over a hundred years old as a phenomenon in the United States, mostly in the South, but also in parts of the Midwest. 
And as you can imagine, it's not a, uh, a uh, it's it's not spreading widely now. But there are there are some new generations. <laughs> there are there are some younger younger ministers that are that are taking up taking up servants. But but you know, to me as an outsider attending the service and uh, looking in, um, it's 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 really haunting. And to see people with, uh, and I would not call it hypnosis. But there's a fervor in people's eyes, which uh, is, is is very very impressive. I have I have enormous uh, respect for the uh, for the uh, individuals that are involved in you know servant handling churches. Well, well, then let me ask this: When you were talking about how uh, back before we were talking about cockfighting, and you said some of the cocks were. Um, they're treated better. They're raised better, pampered than than the chicken, than the one that's going to end yeah. up as a chicken McNugget. Yeah. So yeah, how yeah. are these animals treated in between? I mean, how are they cared for in between services? Do they have plenty of oh, room? Oh, snakes are fed well. Uh huh. The snakes. Um, that's an interesting. Yeah, yeah. That's an interesting question. Um, well, where Reverend, Reverend Jimmy Morrow. What he does is he is he lets his snakes go. Yeah. You know, there's a you know in the. Uh, what he what he does is he gets new snakes every year. So he releases you know, he captures snakes and then he and then he re, and then he uses them in the services for a while and then he releases them. But yeah, and he actually raises mice. I went over his house one time, and he's ra- and he's and he's raising mice. He showed me his, his mice, you know, the mice that he used for uh, for feeding his snakes. And the interesting thing was that he had such respect for these mice, and he would you know he'd take these mice out and and um, and basically play with them. And and his thing was like you know these are these are God and he told me that he said like you know these are God's creatures and you know granted they're going to be God's creatures that are going to get fed to, fed to a snake <laughs> but this 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 to me is what's so fascinating about this whole world that uh, I've sort of been studying is that for example cockfighters the thing that's interesting about cockfighters is how much they really respect and love chickens. I know that that will be hard for a lot of a lot of listeners to understand, but uh, gamecocks mm-hmm. are absolutely gorgeous animals. There's a certain majesty to the to these roosters, and these rooster spiders have just enormous respect for these animals. On the other hand, they t- they're taking them to you know, Saturday nights. They're taking them to the derbies, and uh, they may take. Uh, Ten roosters to a derby, they may fight five or six of them, and they may, uh, you know, all their all their animals might wind up, you know, all, you know, the ones that they fight might wind up dead at the end of the night, and they're not losing any any tears over them. They just basically get thrown into a pile, and and to me, this is just so emblematic of of so many of our uh, interactions with animals. The fact that we can, you know, think so highly of them in the one hand, but yet kill them on the other you know i've got friends uh researchers that are deer hunters and i've never been a hunter i've never gotten the enthusiasm for that but they will you know it, it's very clear to me that they have a lot of uh respect for these animals that they're trying to kill and that they are killing and and you know i'm, I'm still trying to wrap my head around some of these paradoxes but to me this is this is what human nature is all about you know, handling these difficult moral issues in, in in worlds that are morally very very gray yeah definitely and 
was just thinking about when you described about how they, they take care of them and they take them to the fight and then, then some of them are going to end up just the, you know, the, the, the deceased carcass on a pile. Um, yeah, there's a 50-50 chance. The, uh, you have a 50-50 chance of dying. Yeah. And yeah, If you're a rooster, you got a 50-50 yeah. chance of coming home that night, you know. Sort of like, uh, not well, except for the uh, dying and on a pile part. Sort of like uh, professional or, or either you know college or professional athletes. You know they're gonna pamper them and take care of them and run them. You know get them out, but they're gonna break <laughs> something. <laughs> they don't call them on a pile. Boy, that is <laughs> a that is a that is a very apt analogy. That is a that is a very analogy. And, the, and by the way, these these, these roosters are very well treated. You know, you know, especially especially one of the things that I do, and I've you know I've got a chapter in my book in which I compare the ethics of cockfighting versus the ethics of eating a McNugget, and uh, and I you know discuss you know what happens to you if you're you know you have the you know the twist of fate makes you a makes you a broiler, you know, you know a broiler hen headed headed for McDonald's, and uh, you know compared to a gamecock. And yet, though, what you're talking about, the um, I'm looking this up, uh, but but then again, with the snakes, when you talk about uh, the the reverend that you mentioned and how he, ra- you know, cares carefully raises the mice and plays with them and all, and has yeah. respect for all the animals. And then only takes them, you know, I don't, you know, I never knew what they do. They just leave them in a box, they leave them in a cage, and they just pull them out forever until they. But no, it sounds like very different from what. Yeah. From 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 the image I had in mind, and uh, yeah. it's a different perspective on it I have now. So, yeah. Well, now now, now let's, put, so, let's put let's let's put this into some another perspective too. I mean, a lot of our relationships are you know I'm not advocating snake handling. I'm not advocating rooster fighting. I'm not advocating swimming with dolphins. Right. Uh, what what <laughs> I think is that a lot. I, I think I think. What a lot of these uh, activities do, you know. I've also, you know, I, you know I'm I'm very ambivalent about circus animal animal trainers. You know, I've, I've hung out with those guys. A lot of these things are just wacky. There, there's no way to justify um, making an elephant, you know, carting an elephant, or, you know, around in a semi trailer and making them perform basically stupid pet tricks, you know, for six minutes, six or seven minutes a, mm-hmm. a night, you know, and keep that animal captive. It, it, it's terrible. But on the other hand when I've interviewed circus animal trainers about their relationships with these animals, at least the ones that I've talked to, um, I've been incredibly impressed with two things. One is how deeply they cared for the animals. And the, and the other is how much they knew about them. Like I've got a PhD in animal behavior. I have a lot of friends like me that, you know, we're, you know, college professors, we're researchers, we study animal behavior. These circus animal traders know so much more about animals than we do. And you know, if your life depends on walking into a cage full of tigers and uh, walking, you know, you know, you know, and, and and having them do these tricks and stuff like that, you've got to really understand tigers at a very, very deep level, way, way more than a college mm-hmm. professor, you know, you know, you know, a researcher does, uh, an animal behaviorist does in terms of understanding them. And you know, and so, so to me, all these relationships, you know, illustrate. Uh, a fundamental truth about human nature is uh, that in some ways, you know, you know, there's the, there's the good side and then there's the dark side. And we, we see this, these issues play out in so many of our relationships with other species. 
Mm. Yeah, yeah, and this, uh, and I see here one of the um, uh, subtitles in a chapter, in the chapter about uh, in the eyes of the beholder, it is how money and social class affect our perceptions of cruelty. Absolutely. Absolutely. So, for example, um, where one of the places we see the, the effect of money and social class is compare um, dogfighting with thoroughbred horse racing. And uh, the number of animals that die in thoroughbred horse racing each year is absolutely shocking. Most people don't know that. Um, way more than die in dog and dog fighting, but you know we see we see horse racing, a thoroughbred horse racing is the sport of the kings. It's a, it's an activity for rich people, um, and the downside of horse racing, you know, the the drugs which are also part of dog fighting, um, you know, the you know the, the you know the, you know giving animals drugs to make them you know enhance their enhance their performance. Um, the, uh, the the suffering from injuries, you know, are an, an intrinsic part of the, of the of the sport of kings. But yet we never really, uh, you know, they they get a pass. They get a pass. It's mm-hmm. amazing. What I, could you tell me something, or maybe one or two things that surprised you the most in your study? I know this is probably a, a big list, but anything that any, I uh, should say, any results of your research that surprised you that came out very, very differently from what you expected? Yeah, there were there were there were a couple of things. Uh, number one is I basically changed my my whole model of thinking about uh, the role of evolution in human life when I began to study uh, dog breed popularity. And that sounds like it's totally unrelated, right? And what mm-hmm. I uh, I'm an evolutionary psychologist. I, I strongly believe that you know the human mind is influenced by uh, you know sort of evolutionary pressures that we uh, you know evolved from other species, and that we do things because of uh, you know our, our modern behavior affects a lot of the the, uh, the evolutionary pressures on our ancestors. However, what I found out when my colleagues and I began to study uh, rapid shifts in dog breed popularity is that social change occurs incredibly rapidly, that, that our preferences in dog breeds, for example, some dog breeds become popular incredibly rapidly, and then they get unpopular incredibly rapidly. I call, we call these boom and bust breeds. And it takes like an animal like a French bulldog or a Dalmatian it takes about uh, 12 or 13 years for these breeds to become, to, to, you know, to, to go from uh, maybe a couple of, uh, you know, a couple of hundred uh, new puppies per year, you know, in terms of AKC registration, Birkin Cunning Club registrations, mm-hmm. to, you know, 100,000 registrations. But then they drop just as rapidly. And what I realized when I, we began studying this stuff is I realized that human behavior is much more impacted by culture and fads, especially than I had given us given us credit cards. So that was a that was a big a big surprise. Another big surprise was when I started looking at the uh, research data on the impact of uh, pets on health and the effectiveness of animal assisted therapy. And let's take for example the effect of uh, pets on human health. 
you know, a lot of my colleagues uh, have been studying these issues for years and years and years. And, you know, I'd go to conferences and I would hear these talks about, you know, uh, you know, people that pets are less depressed, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. You know, they survive more from heart attacks. And when I wrote a chapter on uh, on pets, I uh, I had to start start you know look look at actually the published studies on the impact of pets on human health. And what really surprised me is that there's a huge number of studies that found that uh, pet owners were no better off, and many studies which found that pets were pet owners were worse off than non-pet owners. So for example, there are studies that show that pet owners are more likely to be depressed, that they're more likely to take uh, uh, you know, you know, drugs for, for medical illnesses, that they're more likely to have sleep disorders, uh, that they're uh, uh, you know, more likely to uh, suffer from hypertension or migraine headaches. But those, those articles never make, never make the news. And so what I realized is that people have a, uh, an unrealistic expectation in terms of uh, the impact of the positive impact of uh, pet ownership on, on our lives. And that was a real surprise to me. Hmm. That's very interesting. Sorry, sorry, to, too, sorry to, be to bring her a bad news. <laughs> hey, hey, look, you know, you know by now I'm a big dog lover, but I know a dog can shove you off the bed when you're asleep or George take over your space <laughs> and you end up all cramped. I am okay. You you push me to admit the truth. That's what it is, you know. When you can say, "Oh, it's so cute. They want to sleep with me," but then once they snatch that, once you wake up and you got no pillow, they got a pillow and you got a crick in your neck. And, you know, <laughs> well, look, I, went... I bought that pillow, not you. <laughs> Well, I, I was I was once uh, inter- interviewed by a journalist, and uh, she was you know we were talking, and I asked her what kind of what kind of a dog she had, and she had she was living in New York City, and she had gotten a Weimaraner, and she was from a small town I've forgotten where, and had recently moved to New York, and she was lonely, and she had uh, read all these articles about you know pets make people less lonely, and you know the social catalyst and all this stuff. And so uh, she went out and she got herself, she went out and she got herself a, a Weimaraner puppy. Well, the problem is that she never bonded with the dog. And she didn't form that sort of wonderful relationship that you may well have with your dog. And I know that I've had with some of our, some of our animals. Mm-hmm. Um, but she, it didn't happen with her. The magic did not happen. And she was stuck with this dog in New York City, and she had to take it up and down. This, you know, she had to take it for walks every day so it could go poop out. You know, go poop outside as opposed to inside. And she was feeling, and and she was getting no emotional support from this dog, and she was feeling really guilty because because it wasn't happening. And she was asking me like, "What should I do?" And here, a really funny thing is that one of my colleagues in anthrozoology, the same thing has happened to her. I was recently talking to her at a conference, and her the dog of her life, the wonderful dog that she had had before, had died last year, and she got this she got a new dog, and she didn't like the new dog. <laughs> you know, she, she and the new dog didn't like each other, and they lived in I won't say where they live, but they lived in they lived in a large city, and she works at a major research university, a major research university, and she just says like you know you know how I just like. I just don't like this dog. It doesn't like me. What? What? The, I don't know what to do. So it's not all sweetness and light. 
you know, as, and as I point out, there's, there's some other downsides. So, for example, in the United States, 85,000 people a year in the United States show up at hospital emergency rooms because they trip over their pet. In fact, I know three people that have broken their arms or their wrist or their ankle or something like that because they fall. Now, of course, most of these people are, you know, they're elderly, you know, and uh, yeah. Think about it. 80, if we had a drug, if we had a drug that, you know, 85,000 people a year, you know, showed up in the emergency room after taking this drug, we would take that drug off the market. <laughs> Furthermore, the drug is expensive. The canine drug and the, and the feline drug is expensive. You know how much that, you know how much of your dog's going to cost you over the next, over the lifespan of the, the dog? Oh, I'm no, going to tell you. going to tell me. <laughs> I am going to tell you, $10,000, $10,000. So if you got that, that, that dog because you were thinking of the health benefits, you could, take, you, could, you could go to the Caribbean a couple times for that. <laughs> yeah. And I, I'm really laughing when you talk about an emergency. I've had these little Pembroke Welsh corgis, and, yeah, they get right behind you. you I love those dogs, by the way. <laughs> but they're yes. right there at your ankles, and they don't say anything. So you don't That's know they're right. behind you. Do you go to walk, and there they are. And uh, I, I, lo- I love, yeah, I love corgis. They're, they're the top of my list for great dogs. The top of my list. Oh, they are great dogs. But you know, I, but I'm always hoping that that do not want anyone to put them in a movie like like the Dalmatians or whatever. I don't That's want right. anybody. That's when people start buying masses of them, and they they just That's right. And then they end up back at the shelters needing a home. That's right. And, That's uh, exactly right. I don't want that. Of course, then again, I got a, um, I got another one that they said was cardigan, corgi, and Aussie cattle. That's what they said in the pet finder, the rescue, and then it turned out it's what they call a Texas healer. Um, and uh, all I know is, at my age, I'm too old for a dog like that. That's that is my that is my gym right now that is you know keeping up with that thing and throwing, throwing a ball and i said he's so cute now if i could just you know monetize him in some way the cuteness the jumping <laughs> and uh if i could just monetize get him an agent him. you know just to, i love that just to, just to do, to do print work I, I, I just get him yeah <laughs> yeah i could, if I I could, I could write a blog work. on that yeah i could write a blog on that how can how can i monetize my dog <laughs> Hey, I don't mean that in a bad way, but you know, I he know. loves to show off. So if I could just get him to quit biting my wrist, and um, <laughs> like like Roger Dangerfield, his favorite bone is in my arm. You know, if I could just get that and uh, get him to sit still for a few pictures. You know, there's a lot of films and stuff being made in Atlanta. <laughs> just get him in a movie. Bam, there you there go. We go. There's my retirement. <laughs> there you go. There hey, you go. Hell, I gotta tell you, I I am just so grateful. You've been so generous with your time with me tonight, and I honestly appreciate it. I have thoroughly enjoyed you, and I can tell already. I'm starting. I'm going to get a lot of messages about this show. I've just uh, really appreciate your book, your work, and the fact that you've just been an absolute pleasure to come on the Madam Perry Salon podcast and talk <laughs> to us about. <laughs> Anthrozoology. Anthrozoology, um, right. 
answers. And where can people find you, find out more about your work and your book? Oh, that's it. That's it. Uh, you can, uh, my book is called Some We Love, Some We Hate, Some We Eat, Why It's So Hard to Think Straight About Animals. And uh, you can look up, up it on Amazon. And uh, I also write a blog if you don't want to buy a book. You don't want to monetize. If you don't want to monetize my book. <laughs> I write I write a, a blog for a Psychology Today magazine on human animal interactions, and it's absolutely free, and uh, it's not monetized, and uh, uh, it's called it's called it's called animals animals and us. So if you go to Google, and if you type in uh, animals and us or animal uh, animals and us and uh, Hal Herzog. It'll pop up, and you can read things like uh, uh, You can read it. I recently wrote a piece on crickets as uh, as uh, animal assisted therapists, effective animal assisted therapists. Um, you can read about uh, why so many vegetarians go back to eating meat. Um, you can uh, uh, read about why dogs evolved to be cute. Issues like that, and you can read about why humans why humans keep why humans keep pets and chimpanzees don't. Oh, okay. Well, I never thought about. It. Well, this this is great, and I hope, sincerely hope that you'll come back and visit sometime because this is just for me just absolutely delightful. Well, I would be absolutely happy to. Seriously, please have me back on. It'd be really fun to talk to. Yeah. Oh, thank you so much, as, as are you. And uh, folks, this is my guest, Hal Herzog. We've been talking about his book, Some We Love, Some We Hate, Some We Eat, and about our, why it's so hard to think straight about animals, as well as uh, check out his blog, Animals and Us, in Psychology Today. Uh, he's just giving you a few topics that I'm looking forward to reading about. And uh, also don't forget... Um, Next week, we have Jasper Bark, our master of horrors, coming back on with his new books and his new web show. And if you, and this appeal, this, this goes for you too, Hal, in case you and any of your colleagues want to uh, go to, have you ever heard of Rock and Roll Fantasy Camp? No. Okay. Well, David Fishoff is an agent and uh, sports and entertainment agent. He's the guy that came up with the idea for the... Uh, Ringo Star All-Star Band and sold Ringo on it, and he has uh, something called Rock and Roll Fantasy Camp. You can also do it as a corporate uh, team-building event or just go sign up and go. Uh, there'll be a band like in September, it was Judas Priest, and then members of other bands like from uh, Quiet Riot or whatever were there as coaches. But if you sign up for, I think they do go like three or four days, you play with them, you practice, you work up a show, and then you do a live show at House of Blues or Whiskey Go-Go or something like that. But if you sign up for Rock and Roll Fantasy Camp, which I think is out there in L.A., and mention that you heard about it from Madame Perry's salon, you will get from David Fishoff, the owner, a free guitar worth $700 when you get there. Whoa! So maybe you're, uh, I, I would definitely yeah. I could use one of those for sure. I knew it. I knew it. I could tell. I could tell. I could tell. Musicians. So yeah, get some of your um, some of your colleagues and uh, or just you and go to Rock and Roll Fantasy Camp. Tell them Madam Perry sent you, and 
And I hope you'll all be back tomorrow night when my guest is Mitchell Levy, the AHA guy, Wednesday, Cat Cannabis, talking about uh, dream therapy. She was recently on Dr. Oz talking about that. Hal Herzog. Okay, round two. Name something that's not boring. A laundry? Ooh, a book club. Computer solitaire, huh? Ah, oh, sorry. We were looking for Chumba Casino. That's right. Chumbacasino.com has over 100 casino-style games. Join today and play for free for your chance to redeem some serious prizes. Chumbacasino.com. No purchase necessary. Forward, prohibited by law. 18 plus terms and conditions apply. See website for details.